Hello. Hi, John. Hi, Berlin. How's it going? Good. Good. Super good, except mm-hmm. that I thought I had more coffee than I have. Oh, what do you mean? The, the raw materials, the, the beans. Mm-hmm. I had, uh, you know, uh, one of the things about having people stay over at your house is that you're not anymore in charge of any aspect of your stores. Oh, and you just got you got to just keep relearning that over and over. Mm-hmm. You know that, right? Mm-hmm. It's it's one of those things you know. Yep. Mm. You know when I had the uh, the game changers up here. Mm-hmm. Uh, at some point after after the game changers weekend, I went. You know, I went into the pantry thinking I had X number of certain items. <laughs> mostly coffee, coffee seltzer coffee, cuban coffee, cigars yeah, bacon <laughs> and it was all gone it was like uh it was like locusts had come through and i felt like richard gear out i should have just started a fire in my house and burned them all <laughs> You're like elizabeth taylor you open your closet expect to see all those beautiful gowns and underpants and it's just just moths laughing at you <laughs> the moths are gone so yeah so i flew a little bit close to the sun letting other people in my kitchen and now i went downstairs i was like time for a pot of coffee Mm. and what i found instead was a refrigerator full of ice cream Hmm. um well first of all freezer full of ice cream a refrigerator full of ice cream would have been a disaster Hmm. uh but you know my um I, i i went to a birthday party and then somebody got Somebody got the idea that the leftovers were going to go with me, but only certain leftovers. And what that ended up being was like four gallons of ice cream. Is it good ice cream? Yeah, it's fine. Like kid ice cream? Yeah, no, no, no. It's not ice milk. It's ice cream. There's Mm. no carob in it. Well, you know what they say. God never closes a door without opening some ice cream. Oh, I I love God. God, God is you know I uh, this is probably just from my background and my fear of privation, mm-hmm. but like I don't like running out of things. Mm-mm. No, <clears throat> and I think I think my lady and I we don't disagree on this. It's just that it it means a lot to me to make sure that there's another. Like, I always got one in the chamber, right? Well, you're so. a guy who drinks twenty cans of carbonated water a day. Or have you have you cut back? Well, the problem is, uh, you know, I've been using the the Soda Stream thing where you buy a big tank. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And I've been out of that for a while, and I've been real lazy because you got to take in your empties. Each one of those things weighs a few pounds. You got to take it in and, and trade them in. So I've fallen back into my old ways, and I've been getting twelve packs of cans. And my wife does not like the cans. Yeah, because I drink seriously. I do drink over a twelve pack of those a day. Yeah. Well, and the thing about the cans, I mean, I haven't been to your house in a while, but I remember the can era. The thing about those cans is that there's, you know, what you end up with is like six or seven cans with some carbonated water in them kind of lying around. That's me. There's like half a can of carbonated water here, half a can of carbonated water there. It loses its carbonation pretty fast. (laughs) And then it's just pop cans full of water. Yeah, I, I yeah, okay, sure. Well, what I do is what happens with me is <clears throat> I usually slam them. Like I usually I'll down oh. a, I'll down a twelve ounce can, can pretty quick. I might start another one, and that's the one I forget. It's the second or third I one. See. And those yeah, they they accumulate, and you can pretty much you know there's that sense of like you're gonna walk into a room and you're like I just know there's gonna be in this case a, uh, a can of seltzer in there, and there is. 
There's one by the bed, one by my daughter's bed. There's a couple by the couch. That's how you know you have a problem when you're when you you're leaving your cans around your daughter's bed. <laughs> she thinks she's better than me. <laughs> she's not better than me. I mean, I understand slamming a can of seltzer water if you're just about to get into a burp fight with somebody. Mm-hmm. But I don't like slamming one. It seems like the opposite of what seltzer is good at. Oh, it feels so good. It burns. Oh, it burns. It's like drinking beer, you know? Mm-hmm. I think I started drinking seltzer more around the time I stopped drinking beer. I used to drink a lot of beer. Oh, right. And I think I like the... Um, it's kind of like my Ethernet cigarette, I guess. I, I, uh-huh. I, I, like, I like these things a lot. And they're, I, they're, they refresh me anytime. I get up sometimes I get up in the middle of the night to urinate, as you do. Yeah. And I'll just go, boom, go have a seltzer. Yeah, right. And it's not it's no calories, no fuss, no muss. You don't owe anybody anything. But then I then I crush it and I throw it against the wall and wake everybody up. <laughs> Fuck you. <laughs> Fuck you. <laughs> That's how I'm living. Yeah. 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 I, I think I told you this. My um one of my all time favorite professors in college, my uh it was on my committee, my poetry professor who was my sponsor most of the time I was there, he I don't he was one of those people where like I just don't know how he dealt. His life was really complicated. You know, you don't make even, you know, as a full professor at a Florida university, you don't make that that much money. Uh, you're and, getting paid in seeds <laughs> and stems. And he had his uh his mom who was, you know, completely like needed total total care, live with him. His uh his son who was developmentally disabled, lived with him some of the time. He taught at other places at the same time, multiple yeah, and this is a guy, you know, who went to Princeton and was one of the first professors at the school. He's a great guy. Like, anybody who went to a new college will remember Mac Miller. He was just the best. But you could tell how stressed Mac was. Macklemore? Macklemore? Macklemore Miller, that's right, with Ryan Lewis. And what he would do is, though, he was always smoking. Two things about Mac is, first of all, like, you would never actually see Mac drink a beer. He would bring a, bring a, sometimes he'd bring a case of beer to class. And, um, and you would, you'd only hear the beer. Those were the days. You'd hear, yeah. Am I right? <laughs> you'd hear, Psst. You hear, psst, and you look, and it was like again, it's a Doctor Who reference. It's like the uh, the Weeping Angels. You can't actually see them move. Mm. You don't see anything. All you hear was, psst. and then you look back. You hear, and he's crunching the can. And wow. it was the same thing with cigarettes. He was, and he's one of those guys, like a Matthew McConaughey smoker. Like he really, each one was like a little conjugal visit. Like uh-huh. he he smoked the shit out of a cigarette in front of a classroom. Everybody smoked in class. It was a style uh-huh. at the time. Uh-huh. Okay, <laughs> I told you about my school. <laughs> <laughs> and uh you can make up your own classes there and yeah it's kind of like I I, I I don't know if you ever saw the grateful dead i was uh yeah i was for you saw them <laughs> no. saw them shit no <laughs> i was fortunate enough to see the Grateful Dead. i like dead. rock music <laughs> <laughs> i was fortunate enough to see them live three times sure back when the early 90s you uh yeah, yeah, you fell right. in you fell late in 80s. with the deadheads late 80s late About, 80s uh, by the early 90s i was already i was already transitioning touch of gray spoke to you Mm-hmm. It really did. Well, you know what it was? It was that I couldn't afford Birkenstocks. Mm, they were costly. They were expensive, and all the cool kids had them for for that that one summer. I think it was the summer of '88. They 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 got big fast. Oh, and it was Birkenstocks everywhere. All the you know it was you know what it was Birkenstocks and mountain bikes. They were both they both became popular that that same summer. Before 1988, Malcolm Gladwell's got a whole chapter about that. Is that right? Uh huh. Before 1988, there were no mountain bikes. I'd never heard of a mountain bike. If you wanted to ride your bike off road, you got a BMX bike. You got a big BMX bike if you were a full grown person. 
then all of a sudden mountain bikes were invented and Ber- everybody was wearing Birkenstocks. And I was like, I don't have them. I-, I can't pay $90 for a pair of sandals. I don't have any money and I don't have any money to get a, a mountain bike and I'm getting left behind here. <sighs> and I feel like that was also the summer that everybody was where everybody was wearing Ray-Bans, not Wayfarers. They were wearing aviators, Ray-Ban aviators. And so I'm looking around. I'm looking to my left. There's a guy in Ray-Ban aviators with Birkenstocks. He's riding a mountain bike. I look to my right. Same same story. And I am I got nothing. Mm. So I was like, I'm going to start going to see, see the Grateful Dead whenever yeah. I can. <laughs> just, to try and, just to try and even the playing field. But one of the things about seeing the Grateful Dead was Jerry... Garcia. You call him Jerry. 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 What do you call him? Papa? What's, what's his, has he got a name? Uh, Jerry. Jerry. Jer. I think Jer, if you're really into it. Mm-hmm. Jer. Jerry would, like, in the middle of a solo... You can't have, you can't have a middle to something that's never ended. He would... He, <laughs> he would walk... He would walk kind of around behind his amp... <laughs> to go to cocaine craft services the, the solo would keep going somehow <laughs> and there would be and then from behind the amp there would be a cloud of smoke and i don't mean like i don't mean like somebody took a puff off a cigarette i mean like somebody i mean like the, a cloud of smoke like they release when the pope is chosen <laughs> like like boosh from behind the amp like oh holy shit jerry jersey had just caught on fire he just spontaneously combusted and then he'd come up come back out from around the amp the solo never stopped and i don't know what all went on behind the amp but i think about it still like i think about and i at the time i was like now that's living mm-hmm. he goes back there he probably goes into one of those uh uh john travolta bubble boy tents Mm-hmm. And all the drugs are in there, <laughs> and he just he infuses them <laughs> through his skin. Yeah, yeah and, isn't that a dream job, though? I mean, the the idea that like not set aside the whole like playing in a rock band that's that's awesome enough to be in with a pseudo rock band, but just the idea that you could still keep doing your job, disappear for a while into a, a puff of indeterminate smoke, and everybody would still be just as satisfied with your job. That's yeah, the dream. You, you go around behind your amp. And you and your drug valet have like I bet a he had like a bong wrangler. I'm sure he did. And he's still playing. He's still playing his guitar. <laughs> and people are people are sticking needles in him. People are like shoving shit up his nose. Saying it's like the Indy 500. It's a pit stop. That's right. They're changing his tires. They're putting a suppository up. Give him a fresh liver. And then he turns back around. Never even stopped. Oh man, it was extraordinary. And uh, anyway, to finish to finish that line of thought, I never have owned yeah. a pair of Birkenstocks even to this day. It's uh, boy, it's it's super frustrating to me as a uh, as a contrarian. I, I really I hate how crazy it makes me feel when something suddenly becomes more than popular. It just becomes something that everybody gets, which is fine. That's called a fad. But yeah. then we act like second. Then we act like it's always been this necessary, right? Right, and and we nobody ever acknowledges how bananas it is. That suddenly it's 1999. We don't know why, but suddenly everybody needs a Bronco. Like everybody needs an SUV, <laughs> and it just suddenly became this thing where, like, well, of course you you got. You know, I can't afford a Hummer, so I got I got a Bronco. Right. It's like you don't. What what are you doing with that? Tyler's soccer gear will fit into a country squire just fine. 
Yeah, but that's not the six... point. That's not the point. It's just that suddenly everybody's got to have that. It's like the Calvin peeing on something stickers, or the stickers of like how many kids you have in your family, or whatever. It's like it suddenly becomes a thing, and you got to do it. Baby on board. Fully sixty percent of the vehicles on the road are SUVs. I mean, I, I don't know if that's ac- uh, accurate, but it sh- sure seems that way to me. Everywhere you look, every single car make has an SUV, and it's that's kind of all the cowboy hat of the cowboy hat of driving. It's really, it's really infuriating because. Um, they're terrible cars and they're bad trucks. Right, right. Um, but, uh, well, I mean, this, this, and I, I mean, and they, they're like a lot of those. Have, they've never been in fourth gear, or they've never been in four four wheel drive no. in their entire existence. They've definitely never been in fourth gear in four wheel drive. <laughs> Not unless their son took it out. <laughs> Not unless I was driving it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But but you can't. But see, even 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 as a contrarian, and I and I, I've I've called it macrame. It's a, it's a phenomenon that I simply call macrame because that to me in my lifetime is the canonical example of like what what is happening? Why why do we suddenly have macrame? And yeah. why is it suddenly something everybody's doing and not acting like it's weird that everybody's got jute? You it's know what? Weird. Listen, I, macrame has a special place in my heart. Are we gonna are we gonna are we gonna go back to the old topic of? <laughs> Home crafts and their place, <laughs> their place in the if, artistic pantheon. <laughs> without macrame, how would you suspend your terrarium? Yeah, right. Mm. How would you? How would you have a terrarium in a in a giant glass globe hanging in your living room? So you got a you, use case. You got you, you're as a terrarium owner, yep. you need a hanging solution. You do, and macrame is it. I don't think that's how most people do it. Well. My, my, all I'm saying is my family, my, 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 my paternal grandmother was for her whole life, uh, a crafty person. Like she had like yeah. an area of the, what they called the utility room where she would make Christmas ornaments. She would make decoupage, like every yeah. single one of those things that you've seen people make in the last 50 years. She did it. She was good at it. Scrapbooking. Well, that's just, that's, that, that's hoarding with a trip to Michael's basically. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, right. You ever I, met a scrapbooker I, the, I, who wasn't a hoarder? I still have stuff around here, you know. Or, or, uh, <laughs> Sorry, <mom>. no offense. <laughs> I, you know what? My whole house is a scrapbook. Uh, my mom, well, every once in a while, will will divest herself of another box that she feels is like keeping her from being able to fly. She's like, I don't want this anymore, and she hands me a box, and I'll open it, and you know, every once in a while, it'll contain some like item of incredible lace, or you know. Uh, Super, super, like detailed handwork, needlework that you would never, ever, you wouldn't be able to buy at any price. And she's like, you know, my grandmother made that, or my great grandmother made that. And you're just imagining the the skill involved in the patriarchy training the women to be that involved in such a useless task, so that they don't have uh, political power. That's extraordinary. But you got to keep their hands busy. You do. You have to. Otherwise, keep them they're going to call meetings and stuff. <laughs> you have to keep them thinking about something. You think about lace is what you think about. You think about lace, and you talk to each other about lace. Let's talk and, more doily. And meanwhile, meanwhile, we're buying your father's farm. She turns around, and there's a guy with a twirly mustache. <laughs> Too late. Uh, yeah, I always think about that late '80s time because. If you recall, this is a very difficult thing to explain to young people. But there was that moment. Who love having things explained to them? (laughs) (laughs) Tell me about those African necklaces that De La Soul wore. (laughs) 
<laughs> that moment in 1988 where the nostalgia for 1968 reached its apogee and we basically the summer of 88 we relived the summer of 68 except dumber lamer uh shittier in every respect i don't know if i don't know where you were on the um i was pretty the, hippie yeah right and 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 even i like, was i was a, i was a fake marxist fake hippie fake punk rock but i was i was a happy guy but yeah. i mean i was i was heavily invested in what you could very loosely call alternative culture, right. and, and, and that to me, and to me, culture hadn't coalesced yet. But also, the, at my school, not to interrupt you, but my school, it, there were scientists of hippies there. Like it, it, the, the, you'll remember, you may not remember, the harmonic convergence was coming, and That's it right. was like science for hippies. Like there was going to be some big shit going down. This is going to be the na- whatever the age after Aquarius is, the age of Libra. I don't know what it was, but something, something serious was going to be going down. <laughs> 1990 is going to make 1670 look like... No, what was it? It was a Dennis Hopper quote from the movie 1969. No, 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 it wasn't. It was a Dennis Hopper quote from another movie that he starred in with Kiefer Sutherland. 1968? No, but it wasn't a retro movie. It was a a contemporary movie where where his quote was, his big pull quote was... What was it? 1989 is going to make 1969 look like 1979 or something like that. <laughs> 1989 is going to make... We'll check the source. 1990 is going to make 1970 look like 1980? <laughs> no, made, no. Made, 1970. <laughs> 1990 <clears throat> is going to make 1969 look like 1950 or something like that. It was a real put down. I'm on glad the I didn't six- have to take that whole SAT test. <laughs> and, yeah, you, you Dennis just, Hopper SAT. You just got to the coloring portion. <laughs> the, uh, the 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 point being that 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 there was there was really and and I remember seeing that movie. Uh, that was the that was the that maybe the one year where I went to see every movie. And that 1969 with the with the 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 one Winona Ryder and um, the and the junkie that plays the superhero now. Um, oh, uh, Robert Downey Jr. Robert Downey Jr. You know, like I teared up in that movie. I teared up as Crosby, Stills, and Nash's wooden ships played, and the, and they got in their Volk, the, the two main characters got in their Volkswagen bus and head at, headed out across America. Like I, I was like, and and I was being spoon fed sixties nostalgia, and 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 I, I was allowing it to be my own youth. Like I was, I was twenty, and I was looking at this movie about twenty year olds from twenty years before, and like, and weeping that I didn't have a Vietnam. You know, to be mad about. Where's my Vietnam? <laughs> Where's my Vietnam? And there, and you know, and that lasted. I mean, that lasted honestly until a grunge. I'm sad to say, but like that sense of that sense of the '60s being this being this shadow on our youth. That the, uh, our generation just was like laboring under this 1960s cloud, and yeah, I was a hippie. And what the fuck was I looking for? I was looking for 
I, and I, and I, partly I think it's because the 60s generation never produced anything after the 60s. You know, they were stuck in a, in a, in a complete retro nostalgia trip about themselves. And there were so many of them, and they were so powerful that they just like, that's they, weird. It's it's almost like the '60s ended in 1968, but kind of didn't really end until 1980. I well, and, go and, go watch Boogie Nights or something like that, and like it really, it really is like people really thought stuff was going to be really, really different. That but I, I would argue that it that it lasted until 1990 hmm. in the same kind of like uh, in the same like frozen state. Oh, the, because the it, was enough, expectation. it was like enough time for the that generation, the um, baby boomers, to come into power and purchase pur- purchasing and political power. Like it, there was this latent period where it should have just gone away, but then right about the time it should have gone away, they were the ones out there who were like, you know, you get the big chill culture coming around again. Right, right, kind, right, kind right. of. Well, yeah, th- there's that. I mean, that 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 all through the seventies, I think they were still. I mean, most of those people were. Like really into buying hi-fi, hi-fi stereo systems. Or I mean, I'm just basing this on old copies of Wii magazine. But starting in 1980, like they were. So let's think about the baby boomers for a second. As much as I hate to do it, in 1980, let's say the average baby boomer was 30 years old, and they are a little bit taken. They're taken by surprise by punk rock, new wave, and disco. I mean, disco. I think they were, they were on board, but punk rock, new wave. It that's brand new, and uh, and and it, and it doesn't involve them. It's not about them. And so they, even at thirty years old, that generation starts to turn back and and look at themselves. Uh, as a you know they start to circle the wagons and that's what that's the that's the beginning of when you start to see this like well really nothing ever happened after the 60s like really the 60s were the peak like 1968 that was the peak you know you yeah you started to hear that idea in american culture and and that that natural thing i mean in 1999 and at every point along the way you look back 10 years and go boy things really sucked 10 years ago and then 10 years after that you're like wow things were amazing 20 years ago you know there's that there's that strange like skips a mini generation kind of yeah and 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 you can't i mean do you remember how much shit we talked about the music of the 70s we talked so much shit about the music of the 70s in the late 80s early 90s I mean, I, I, I had multiple conversations with people where everybody accepted the basic premise, which was that the 70s were the worst, uh, the worst decade for music. It could only be enjoyed ironically. Yeah. It was only 20 years. But I mean, I, I remember, like, for example, when the Have a Nice Day collection came out, which is full of like AM radio hits that I loved as a kid and still really like today. But it was all very, it was, uh, very ironic. You mm-hmm. know, if, like from from a remove, and, and I remember though. It, like, so, look at this garbage. Look think at about, this. Like, think yeah. about like when Delight got popular, and around the time that like house music was starting to really get big, and raving was like a pre-raving kind of age. But still, like the whole idea of these like massive dance parties was coming around that were very, in some ways, very influenced by by a certain sixties kind of vibe. Certainly, sure, the, as the you said, as you said before, De La Soul that that right. first record, very very sixties. 
graphically and it's the daisy age. It's the daisy age, y'all. It's daisy age, y'all. But the yeah. um the the but the, but think about this though also uh like how in 1990 let's say in 1992 like clothes from 1972 look so preposterous so you'd see like Susanna Hoffs like ironically wearing bell bottoms in a video or something or you think about the delight video which is having a lot of fun with that iconography but the thing is the stuff from 1972 looks timeless compared to what people were wearing in 1992. Go watch it. Go watch an early Seinfeld, and you're like, "Oh my god!" People, I mean, the '90s is so much more '80s than the '80s ever was. Yeah, are you hip now to the to this new um the normcore? That's like art, artisanal toast. I think that's got to be a prank. People are wearing mock turtlenecks <laughs> <laughs> and, and dad I, dad jeans. And I, the thing is, you know, I read I read a couple of articles about it where it's like, is this real? But I mean, I I know some kids, and it is real. They're they're the kids are rocking, not just Cosby sweaters, but like to the next level of, uh, yeah, right. It just shows like, you Scott Simpson was ahead of this all along. Yeah, he was wearing mock turtlenecks the entire time before it was uncool. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know. I I still I still feel a little bit of 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 resentment, like a little bit of of residual resentment about the way the 60s, uh, the the way the the urine smell of the 60s was all over the music of the late 80s. I'm still mad. That's why I'm grunge. That's why I'll be always grunge. That that and and the Birkenstocks. Yeah, th- that whole, I mean, you know, I i feel like I dove into drugs with at least a certain amount of expectation that, I mean, the way the, the, way the 60s cult- subculture looked back on itself and the way that drugs had freed their mind and the way that drugs were, you know, what separated them from the squares and, you know, that whole division that that might have been uh, and I think probably was pretty poignant in 1962 through 64. Like, we're doing drugs. No one else has ever even heard of them. This is, you know, like, we are really outside. But but the, ma- the, the, the by the time the mass culture got a hold of drugs and it was just like, eh, yeah, all right. You, all right, you're a bunch of spoiled kids. But when I was 17, 18 years old, that was back in the... And you know, and, and I'm not even saying it was in the it was in the top level of the culture, but it was it was throughout the culture this winking between baby boomers, like remember, remember the shit we saw, <laughs> remember the drugs and the times and all the sex, remember. And at 17, and per, you know, perceptive of of subtexts, I was like, well, I, yeah, I want to do the drugs and and have the sex and. And run away in a Volkswagen bus and 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 protest the war. I mean, when we had, of course, Ronald Reagan that s- could stand in for a lot of the, he could stand in for fifties suburban culture that we were rebelling against. But <clears throat> yeah, I would have liked to have uh, the the one regret I have at not being punk is that. Punk legitimately was its own, was a subculture of my time that I could have participated in 
more actively and it would have felt like it belonged to me. Mm-hmm. And instead I rejected punk uh, for a, you know, for a handful of, of valid reasons. But instead I was, I was, I was sampling from this buffet of other American cultures that none of them belonged to me. And they were all kind of lies and, and uh, yeah, I look back at that time, eighty, let's say eighty-seven through ninety-one, as a time of like, I just I feel a little bit ashamed, even hmm. because I feel ashamed that I that I went to the Grateful Dead. Not that I, not because of the music, but because I was I went there looking for, I wasn't looking for a party, I was looking for enlightenment, and that seems idiotic to me now yeah i could see that i felt that way uh going to see like you too in 1985 um you were looking for enlightenment what kind of enlightenment they were they were transcendent in a lot of ways no. oh i mean look at the charts dude your beloved phil collins you got <laughs> whitney houston you got billy ocean you got charday and then you got them singing about martin luther king i mean it really seemed very important to me Mm-hmm. And their shows were very, you know, it was, I, I, I I'm not going to sit here and act like I'm super wise or anything now, but I, I think I understand a little bit more about stagecraft today than I, than I did then. Understanding stagecraft is probably part of what allowed you to enjoy the Miley Cyrus thing and go like, oh my God, now that you're officially an old man, you're allowed to go to things and go, how did they do that? That must've been expensive. <laughs> did you hear about the lawsuit? Miley Cyrus has a lawsuit? Yeah. What, what, who's suing her? One of the guys who worked on the tongue got injured. Oh, yeah, isn't that a bummer? Oh, the tongue. One of the tongue builders. <clears throat> See, my experience is so vastly different because, uh, and, and just to finish the story from an hour ago, so my, you could tell when that when that professor was getting really stressed out because he'd start a second cigarette. We oh, already and the had, first one was still burning. Yeah, and on a couple occasions, and these are the days you did not. These are the days when he said, "Let's sit here and go through the pile and talk about what everybody did wrong today." When he was really stressed out, he uh-huh. would actually sometimes get a third cigarette lit, and that's when you just like sat very quietly because you knew it was going to be a bad class. It was going to be a tough class. It's <laughs> <laughs> called a pathetic fallacy. Uh, a rose can't have an angry thorn. That, that, that doesn't make any sense. It literally, doesn't make any sense. <laughs> that was me. That was me. That was me. Rose is angry you, you thorn. Said- Rose's angry thorn. Oh, I got called it twice that week. It was every bad. rose has an angry thorn. This is before that, I think. Was it? I don't even know. I can't even keep track. But the thing is, this school was such a little funky petri dish. It's in Sarasota, Florida. Um, there were five hundred and twenty students in this in the Crazy. entire college when I went there. Crazy. Uh, everybody, you, I mean, I, I honestly can say, I mean, partly because my memory was better, but I knew at least the first name of every person who went to the school. And I had talked to well over a majority, probably 80%. I was an RA for a year. I knew everybody. everybody. Hi, Marge. Hi, Ben. Hi, Yeah, Al. everybody knew Hi, everybody. I, I went through periods where I was barefoot for a while. Did you ever go oh. through a barefoot phase? That's something you could do at this school because oh. we were, it was a total, it was this little, speaking of terrariums, it really was like a terrarium. Like it, it's, it's, I hate, you know, it's funny to admit, but even at the time I was aware of stuff like all the ca- campus cops were by and large re- retired uh, New York City police officers who had moved to Florida. Mm-hmm. One of the guys had worked on a boat that, that dragged the East River. 
Another guy had been a homicide uh, cop, and they moved to Florida. They retired to Sarasota, and they got all fat, and they worked at this college where uh-huh. essentially they protected us. They didn't bust us. They would, bust, I mean, if we were egregious and dicks, they would bust us. But by and large, they protected us from the community. If right. people came to these parties who weren't the enlightened drug users that we were, they'd roll them. And it was just strange, though, to have four years in that environment at that time. So think about, you know, it's funny. I just looked up Big Chill. I would have guessed Big Chill came out in like '86. Came out in 1983. Yeah, it, see, that's what I'm saying. It was, it was the that's the beginning of that response to new wave. Where I mean, in '83, those Big Chill characters were in their early 30s, right? And they're already like getting back to the reunion. That's 31 years ago, though. That Jeff Goldblum was in a movie 31 years. Well, he's in Annie Hall in what 1977. It's bananas. Mm. But anyway, I'm just saying, like, I know I, I try to always leaven this by remembering that my experience is, if not unique, very different. And that it, for me, it really was like that first month in Haight-Ashbury before the heroin arrived. It was it was a really amazing environment. And, and the parties on the weekends, like the mixtapes that really were a hit would be like uh, White Lines, Talking Heads, um, like uh, Scratch Perry, like just this crazy mix of music I had never heard in my entire life. Mm-hmm. And then you might hear like institutionalized or something, but which nobody wanted to dance to. But it was a lot. It was a lot of like hippies listening to like reggae and hip hop. A lot of people from New York that came to the school brought along this culture with them. I learned about Def Jam uh, artists around the same time. Anyway, it's just it's just strange because it was. I felt like just for that one four year period, it was such an, a great time for me, even though it was you know tumultuous like it is for anybody in their early twenties. But. Uh, it, it's then I think about what it would be like to go somewhere where you just had a ton of weed all the time, like outside the terrarium, and it scares the shit out of me. Well, and this is the thing. <clears throat> I <clears throat> pardon me. There was a handful of colleges that I and I had never heard of the new school of Sarasota, Florida. It's really, really small. <laughs> it's it's it sounds amazing, but the ones I was aware of. Uh, were you got Reed, Reed, Santa Cruz, Santa Cruz, Colorado College. Um, um, what's the other? Oh, like um, Evergreen. Evergreen, I never considered, but yeah, Evergreen is there. But the alternative colleges. Yeah, and then you've got the ones like Colby, uh, the the kind of preppier ones that are still kind of small, but but. Um, oh, they're like 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 but like liberal liberal arts colleges. Yeah, your classic yeah. liberal arts college, Antioch. Um, and so there was this, this little constellation of schools that I, that intrigued me. And I think probably Reed was the one that I, that I imagined, uh, myself at the most. Is that, that's in Oregon, It's right? in Oregon. Yeah. Yeah. And all of those were places where, you know, the combination of smallness and exclusiveness and they were expensive and, and they were, uh, they were places where young people could go and really explore. And that was, yeah. And the adults that were in charge felt like that was kind of their mandate. Like we're, this is a place for young people to explore, but all those places were outside of my, I could not reach them. And so I was then in the, I was basically like out in the world. I mean, Gonzaga university was also small, but was not a, I mean, what, what Gonzaga was, was a place for young Catholic people to meet each other and get married before they graduate. Hmm. Um, how, and, how, remind me how Jesuit, the Jesuit part of the school is. 
I mean, was well, it mostly I, just going through the motions, or were you expected to be a, a person of faith? No, no, no. I think that uh, I think the, the 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 compromise that Jesuit colleges make, and that that I think all Catholic colleges make, is that Catholicism is is widespread and diverse enough that you're always going to have half the population are just sort of affluent practicing Catholics, but not real thumpers about it who you know who it's, not, it's not like to, going to a conservative christian university not at all where it's I got, think you've that, got a mandate you got a reason for being there because of you, that one thing yeah if you want to be that if you want to go to notre dame and be uh be a real grind and spend all day in chapel they're certainly happy to accommodate you mm-hmm. but those places are really a place to learn to drink in an adult way you know like you, you're, you to learn to be a polite wealthy alcoholic and and to meet and marry a respectable uh member of your same order right i mean this is where this is where you send your kid to find that to find a mate who is of your same creed um, and you know, and obviously get a good education. Or well, whatever. It's like pre qualification, right? Because it's probably going to be somebody Catholic. It's going to be whose fam- somebody whose family has enough money to go to a university. You know what I mean? It's got it's got a built in like, Catholic get- and respectable and prosperous. Yes, and but there's no <clears throat> so the the Jesuit component at Gonzaga. Yeah, there was a house where the Jesuits lived, and a lot of them taught the classes. But the Jesuits are going through their own internal. I mean, they're having relationships with each other that are that are their primary relationships, you know, or their, or their on on again, off again relationships with God or whatever. So there wasn't a sense at Gonzaga, like here we are here. This is a giant sandbox where the, where we're going to let these kids like discover the world. If you wanted to discover the world, they had, they had God there that, that, that was, you know, that was available if you were philosophical but if you weren't philosophical, there was no, there, you, it's, you weren't encouraged to be philosophical. You know, the basketball team was what, was what uh, most of the students cared about. But I think that was probably an experience that was, that was uh, common to every small college in America at the time, which is that, that I was looking for, I was looking for uh, an experience like the one you're describing at, at, uh, New new school, new college, <laughs> and um, and you know, and making it for myself with a small group of friends out of whatever like pieces we could find, and usually what that meant was we all climbed into a car and we drove down to Riverfront Park in Spokane and found some guy on the street that was selling acid, and half the time it was just paper dipped in arsenic, and half the time. <laughs> It was like the most amazing acid you ever had in your life. And how the hell did they, how the hell did some guy on the street in Spokane have this stuff? And then we would go, um, you know, take acid and go sit by the river and watch the water and think to ourselves, whoa, we are, we are changing. We are, no, we're not just changing internally but we are some somehow through this process we are going to make the world a better place i don't know how we're not doing anything but taking drugs but somehow that is supposed to make the world better you're raising consciousness right somehow my my personal consciousness being 
changed is is an act of resistance and an act of pol- it's political activism and you know in fact it is it's really past a certain past a certain very uh brief threshold it's none of those things but but i didn't have a you know what it was i didn't have a god the only god uh the only mentor i had was like i think most people uh was television or mass culture and and trying to trying to figure out what the what trying to understand what counterculture was just by watching its reflection in the the glasses of mass culture you know what i mean i think so that you were I, it was from a from a certain remove or like almost like almost through translation you were trying to find something authentic and uh, you're watching the shadows on the cave wall, sort of. Exactly. Yeah. There wasn't a like if if I had ever met a 30 year old punk rocker who said, "Hey, man, I know that this seems really stupid to you, but there's more to it than that. Come with me and let me show you a couple of things." You know, I. It, but it, but he wouldn't have had to have been a punk rocker if I had ever met a thirty year old anything. That could be somebody who runs a video store. It could have been somebody who runs a video store. That can be a that can be a real like life change in a small way, a real life changing experience. Somebody say, "Hey, go check out this sentence." You know, it's in French. But you got to read, but right. like it's you're going to learn some stuff here. But I never had that. No, I never met. And I think some of it is luck of the draw, and some of it I think maybe is that maybe I was personally unappealing to 30-year-olds when I was 20. <laughs> but to whatever degree, that, that gesture of taking a young person under your wing, even for a moment, and saying, like, hey, I see where you are. Let me, let me give you, like, let me read this book or whatever. Um, the, the only exchanges like that I was having were either with peers or with much, much older adults. But nobody that was helping initiate me into um, the the simultaneous culture that's happening beneath and beside the visible culture, and it, you know, it took me a, it took me many years to to wend my way through those corridors and find it myself and and feel like a member of it myself. That's really interesting to hear you say that because it's. Um, I, I think, so can, can you understand then you could look at something like punk rockers or people who like new wave films, but can't you on some level also look at somebody who goes to a, like a Midwestern Christian church and understand that it isn't just that they believe in the wizard in the sky. There is an element of community to it. For example, I think that's, what's common to all of these things is you finally found a place where you don't feel like an outsider for a little while. Mm-hmm. And you found somebody who, and it, so much of it has to do with timing. That's the other part. Whether you talk about your 30 year old person or your however person, I mean, you know, you, you, in order to be a good teacher, one of the basic tenets of expertise is understanding that in order to be a good teacher, you have to understand the material extremely well, but you also have to understand the level of expertise of the person that you're talking to. Otherwise it's pointless. Right. If you're the greatest uh, calculus teacher in the world, then you it's you're going to have to modulate what you know to talk to a three year old, and it's it's unusual to find. I think it's unusual unless you're like Forrest Gump. It's kind of unusual to meet more than a handful of people in your young adulthood who hit you at the right time with the right message to help you understand something that used to seem really 
opaque. Yeah. So, I mean, and that's when, when things like the, the punk rock or whatever, I mean, and there's a lot of people, look at the Castro. The Castro is not just about intercourse. It's about a place where people came for the first time in their life and felt like they weren't an outcast right. and that there was somebody else in the entire fucking world that was more like them than not like them. It's the first time, if you came here from, not to be disparaging, but if you came here from, you know, from Missouri or something, you probably had not met a really super out guy who like danced on a parade float and was proud of it. <laughs> Who are you being disparaging against? Missourians or, yes. or, or Castroites? I was theoretically <laughs> slagging Missouri for its lack of, of dancing float love. Anti-Missouri but, ping but that's, pong. But still, so like I, feel, I can think of these people, specific people, somebody who made me a tape that I met like you know a couple times and gave me a tape of music that changed my life. Or people like I went out to dinner with a couple times, friends of my mom's who were a little younger, that just knew all kinds of stuff about no-wave music. And it's like I had no idea what they were talking about. But it was they, they were so cool and they were so nice and they didn't talk down to me and they treated me like a peer and they made me feel like there is something understandable in this in this opaque culture. And the problem with opacity is that opacity reads as danger to most of us. And, and sometimes for extremely good reasons. But anytime there's something out there, whether it's something lots of people are into or not many people are into, I think if we don't immediately grok it, it's not unusual to go like, oh, that's not for me. That's weird. That's dangerous. That's too mainstream. That's whatever. But it's, it's just, I feel, you know, I feel blessed, I guess, to have been, to have people come across my path where I wish I had more of them. And yeah. I always want to be that person to somebody without being an asshole, without going, oh, here, listen to the Pixies. Like, yeah. you know, no, that's okay. I got plenty of music. I'm good. But, but you know, no, seriously, really, this is, this is really good. Well, I, I, I think you were blessed. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm reflecting now. I'm, uh, one time I, I had, I had hop, I'd hopped a freight to, and, I, and I'd gotten off in Missoula. I'd made a mistake. The, the The train pulled into Missoula and stopped. And it sat there. And I'm sitting on the train and I'm, you know, I didn't understand how freight trains worked at this point yet. <laughs> and so I'm sitting is this contemporaneous the, with pitching your tent in a dump. <laughs> no, this is after that. Okay. It's so after you're learning. After, I'm, I'm learning. I mean, I'm now, I'm now successfully, choosing freights that are going where I want them to go. And I'm able to pick the train knowing its destination or, or having a general sense of its destination and get on it, you know, in more or less a safe way. But the, so the train comes to Missoula and it just, it sits and it sits here in the yard and it sits here for 10 minutes. It sits here for 12 minutes. And my, my brain starts turning and I'm like, uh, uh, oh, I must have gotten on the wrong train. This train was just going to Missoula, and now it's done. Mm. And it's a, I'm sitting here in the hot sun, cowering, hidden, you know, in this uh, on this flat car full of beams or whatever it is. And uh, I should, I, I guess, I should get off this train and find a better train, or, or you know, I, I was still, I was still too. Um, I, I, my, I was more anxious than I was knowledgeable. So I jumped down off of the train and I, you know, I kind of run across the yard to, to find some shelter, find some shade. And then uh, immediately the train that I was on starts moving and pulls out and heads <laughs> off to Denver or wherever it was I was trying to go. And 
I was like, oh, fuck, you know, like, there it goes. See you later. Like, if I had just stayed on it for another two minutes, I would be out of here and on my way. And now I'm stuck in Missoula and I got to go through this whole process of finding another train and getting out of here again. So I walk into town and I know, I know somebody at the college. I mean, I know, you know, I knew somebody that was going to school there. And so I walk over and I'm like kind of doing that thing that I would do at, uh, when I would be in a strange town, I'd go to, uh, first thing I'd do is go to the college and try and find the common area, the dining hall or the student center. And I would just go find a couch there and tuck my bag behind the chair and just kind of sit and wait for something to happen. And more often than not, something did, you know, more often than not, somebody would come along and say, can I help you? And I would say, oh yeah, I'm looking for this person. And I swear to you, 85% of the time, no matter where I was, even at Rutgers, uh, somebody would say that person, the person, the first person to walk up to me would say, oh yeah, I know them. Come with me. And if they didn't know who I was looking for, they would say, oh, let me ask this guy. And the, the next guy would know. Anyway, I'm sitting in the lobby, sitting in this student center at University of Montana and this guy comes over and sits down next to me and he's like, hey, how's it going? And I'm like, good. And right away he starts talking to me about Jesus. And I'd been through it a thousand times already. You know, I'd, I'd, I'd been through every process, the process of like, I'm actually going to sit and talk to this guy about Jesus. Or I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bait this guy and act like a dummy and have fun with him. Or I'm going to tell him to fuck off. Or, you know, I'd, I had... I'd done everything that a young person can do. And, and now I was just in a place where it's like, I don't have a strategy with this guy. And frankly, I'm, I've been, I'm tired and I'm kind of feeling a little bit lost. And so I'm just going to, I'm just going to talk to this guy. I'm just going to engage him just as a human being. I'm not going to try and, I'm not going to try and like mind mind meld or mind fuck with this guy Mm -hmm. and so we sit in the student center and he's he is uh he's talking to me about jesus and there's this this simultaneous narrative in my head where i'm asking myself are you vulnerable right now to this like what would happen if you just said if you just abandoned your cynicism and just and just went with jesus like what would that feel like and and i was i was conscious of being able to make that choice you know like uh, and up to that point my history as a as a child of my own parents my history as a uh, kind of inhabiting the identity that i had spent my whole life building had would have always prevented me from being able to take somebody like that seriously but I was sitting there and, you know, and of course you're also asking yourself the questions based on their received narrative of like, is this what it means to have your heart opened? Is this what it feels like when God touches you and opens your heart? Because I am feeling as I am feeling as disposed to this philosophy as I am to any philosophy right now. And, you know, I had a very nice couple of hours with this guy where he was really excited about his faith. 
And I was just as, it seemed as reasonable to me as anything. And, uh, and I, and I spent probably six months after that walking around going, still feeling like Christianity was a cult, but wondering whether or not I was like a cult, maybe a potential cult member. Like maybe, maybe this is what I should do. Maybe this is God speaking to me. What was it? Well, if you can say, what was it about that particular exchange or your state of mind or, or whatever? Did he, I mean, it wasn't just as simple as like he, he hacked in with the magic phrase. There was, what was it about that particular time that made that resonate with you? I think it was that I, I was very starved for meaning and, and had been for years and, and had sought meaning everywhere I went and had found none. Um, like the philosophies of all of the people I admired, and none of them, none of them were revealed to be really philosophies at all. They were just, they were faking it till they made it or, their philosophy was too general. There wasn't, there did, there did not appear to be any meaning. Um, and, and I think the idea when I was a teen and in my early twenties was that there was meaning and it was discoverable and it was just hidden from us because we couldn't handle it or we weren't smart enough to detect it. Uh, and that, you know, at, at a certain point it was like, there doesn't appear to be any meaning. It isn't a question of there being a plan that we aren't, uh, that we don't see. It's a, it is really just that every one of us is doing their own thing and, and, uh, it only looks like a plan later. And I didn't want that. I really didn't. I wanted there to be a secret Mm -hmm. and I wanted to be both smart enough and also creative enough or smart enough and also sensitive enough to be the person that discovered it or was capable of hearing it and and knowing it. And so uh, at that, at that moment and for a while after that, I was just like, uh, I was open to people that uh, open to people proselytizing what I f- had already rejected. Like I gave it a new hearing. And that was the last, that was the last time I considered that there was really a, um, a plan. And when I, when, when I came out the other side of that, and, and I mean, I, and I felt very vulnerable. I felt like if, if one more person had come up to me and put their arms around my shoulder and said, and had seemed smart and funny and gentle, that I would have said, you know, uh, like the other option for me tonight is sleeping in a boxcar. So, <laughs> right. yeah, I'll come, have, I'll come have Hare Krishna dinner with you. Um, but on the other side of that, I never, I never again really believed that there was, that, that, that there was any kind of orchestration to life. 
um, it, and it, and, and I don't think I was ever vulnerable again to being, um, brought into a fold or, or, uh, accepting a doctrine, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You seem disinclined to, uh, give yourself over to most things in general, but especially to things where you are, I can't speak for you. You got to speak for yourself, but it seems like you're disinclined to go into things where you're expected to check out intellectually, stop asking questions and be a good German. Well, and that's the thing. Even if I had done, I don't know how I, w- I don't know at the end of that three day weekend where I would have been. Mm-hmm. I don't think, I don't think there's ever there. There's no narrative. I, I, you might've been I, super duper 10 times more disappointed. <laughs> I mean, you might have you might have been enraged because you might have realized something that was basically fundamentally hypocritical or something about it that, that you needed to get a little bit closer to the center to, to be able to see it. Well, and that's what happened to me with um, working in nonprofits. You know, I went back east on that same trip and ended up getting a job uh, working at the National Environmental Law Center, um, which was a Ralph Nader organization kind of connected to the public interest research group and i spent four months really 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 engaged in the in the idea that you could that there were liberal um organizations that that were paying for lobbyists and that lobbying the government for liberal causes was god's work you know that that was yeah it's a way to throw yourself upon the gears in some ways right i mean you really put put your money where your mouth is you you, to get out there and actually do that and be forced to confront people who don't agree with you that's uh that takes stones it was and it was and and i was successful at it and and i was promoted within the organization and i got up to the point where i i realized a that the the people who were really running this organization were all young lawyers from Ivy league schools. And I was 21 and they were all probably 27, but they were, you know, Yaley's and they believed they knew what was right. And they believed they knew what, what they had to do. And they were working within the system and I felt a certain amount of class resentment uh, because there was a, although we, although they were older than I was, they weren't that much older than I was. The ones who can afford to work at those places are often, to use a, an unkind phrase, trustafarians. Yeah. The people who can afford to make, you know, $12,000 a year working 60 hours a week are, are not people with college loans to pay. Yeah, right. With a, with a Yale Law degree. Uh, but they were, yeah, exactly. They were, they were smart. They were beautiful. They were rich and they were politically on the right side and they were devoted to the cause. Like all of that is very, very appealing from a distance. You know, I imagine that that is what, um, like Ronan, hanging out with Ronan Farrow looks like. Uh, all, it ticks all the boxes. Um, and the fact that they were born on third and thought they hit a triple, that they're also liberal enough to know that analogy and to use it against themselves. Um, but still, they, but they still believe that they hit a triple. <laughs> but but sitting there within that organization and and 
and I was in a position where I started asking, I, uh, where I was conscious of the money we were raising, and I started asking where the money went. And I wasn't in a I wasn't in a real position to see like nuts and bolts where the money went, but we were raising a lot of money, and we were raising it because we we were raising it by saying to people by you know sending this army of canvassers out saying to knocking on people's doors and saying the clean air act is under assault we need your help and here's where your money's going to go it's going to help to to pass this legislation to support the clean air act to support the clean water act we're raising a ton of money and then what that meant was what that money all got put into a undifferentiated pot there was no like the money that this person raised about the Clean Water Act and the money that this person raised about the Voting Rights Act or whatever, it all went into the same pot. There was no, it was not targeted money. And then from that pot, what they did was pay lawyers and lobbyists. <laughs> and lawyers and lobbyists took congressmen out to dinner and lobbied them. And the the disconnect between the righteousness of those kids on the street who were going door to door and like, you've got to help. Please, Mr. and Mrs. America, write a $50 check. We need your help. And the, the ragamuffins who are working for Fagan. <laughs> <laughs> and then you, you, then you trace that $50 check yeah. and it just ends up, it's just steaks and cigars and there was a and and within that organization there was a real uh like the response to me was listen do your job you don't need to know where them you don't need to know about this stuff that's not which that's makes it feel your, like a cult it felt like a cult i mean that's that's such a to me a defining characteristic of a cult is that there you you taking people for what they believe is going to be a good uh life affirming life changing positive for them change you subsume them into the group you uh, you work them <laughs> really really hard until they're too exhausted to ask questions. I don't know. And and the thing is, I supported everything that that or uh, that that organization did. I admired everybody involved. But again, I felt like the moment I recognized myself as a cog, and the moment that I recognized my own idealism and enthusiasm for this as just a thing they were utilizing to accomplish their goals which was not, which i wasn't really privy to well, you're not even allowed to know the real goals <laughs> not even allowed to know not even you know never going to be invited into that room right and these guys are not even the ones these guys don't really even have access to the room the real room i just felt like oh well this isn't for me either mm-hmm. and you know that uh that and and i and i think reflecting back what i what i recognize is that i wasn't ever meant to be a member in that way and what i really missed was a mentor at some point early on saying don't look for what you're looking for in these things kid like you're not going to find it in punk rock or in uh Ralph Nader's organization or in a corporate environment. Like there are some people who um, 
who don't belong. And I guess as I say it out loud, I'm realizing there isn't a mentor like that. The people who don't belong discovered that and discover that path on their own. Mm-hmm. And that it is that it sucks. There's not many institutions that have half a dozen people like that in them, right? And and it and it's only luck. If I would have, I, I was on a I was on a boat one time, um, crossing from Morocco to Italy, and I was considering. I was I was at a point in my life where I was considering giving it all away like abandoning my life and my history and moving, transitioning into a new existence of like constant, uh, like actually following my own footsteps in in, in a way. Like, like I was going to walk, I was going to walk off this boat this is a long time before I walked across Europe, but I was going to walk off this boat and I was going to walk into a new life where I did not have a past. And I was not going back to America. If I went to America again, it was going to be that I went to America, not back to America. And I was going to become a citizen of the world or something. I was sitting on the boat and I was really thinking about what it would, what it would take to cut all those ties. And I, and I'm not constitutionally a tie cutter. You know, I I loved my family. I, you, you stayed in touch with your family a hell of a lot more than most people I know, to be honest. Yeah, and, and in a way, like, I am one of my characteristics is nostalgia. I am, def- I, I carry nostalgia and a, and a warm feeling for nostalgia around with me. And it, and it, and it's one of the things that keeps me from being truly a radical is that I nurture nostalgia in myself. But I'm on this boat and I'm thinking, I'm going to just, I'm just going to like do it. I'm just going to burn. I'm going to burn my old life and I'm going to walk off this boat and I'm going to walk into a new life. And there was a guy on the boat who sat down, you know, who like saw me from across the dining room and came over and sat down at my table and he looked like Mike Mills looks now. Like he was an older guy, gray, long gray hair. And it was one of those weird encounters where a guy did sit down across the table and say, what's going on with you, man? And I was like, well, I'm thinking about not going back. And he was like, I thought so. I saw, I saw that in your face and I was like, what man? Like a really weird encounter. And we, for the length of this ferry trip, he sat there and he was like, do it. Don't go back. Do it. You know, you should. And you, you, you'll never, you can't know what the future holds, but it's going to be amazing and you just need to do it. And, you know, I'm, I'm sitting there like, are you a wizard? <laughs> but, but feeling so empowered by this guy's attention. And I think I said some, you know, some version of like, will you be my guide? Can I come with you? 
And he was like, no, 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 no. That's not how it works. You, you go like, I'm, I'm on, I'm on my own thing. You, you have to go and do your thing. And I was like, and I wanted to go with him. I wanted to spend like a month at least, please just take me home with you for a month and tell me more. And you know, the boat docked and I walked off the boat and I was like, I'm done. I'm not going back. I'm not going back to America. I'm not going back to, I'm not going in reverse, but it, but I didn't have a clear picture of what that meant. I, and it didn't take, you know what I mean? Like it was a, it was a hallucination. And when, when winter came and I got cold and I got hungry, uh, you know, four, five months after that, I bought a ticket back to America hmm. and Bought a ticket back to America, like, please take me back, America. <laughs> um, and that was a, you know, that was a moment. That, well, that was a crossroads that I, that I, I went, I took the road less traveled by, and I went about a mile and a half up it, up it and then I turned around and I ran back to the crossroads <laughs> and took the, uh, took the road more traveled by. And that has made all the difference. <laughs> <laughs> wow, I like. I had some follow-up, but I'm fine to stop right there. That was great. Oh, no, no. I want, I want your follow-up. All right. Um, hmm. I don't have anything as profound as that, but it, I, I think I, you tell you what frustrates me, and it, it took me a long time to realize this. I could have, um, I could have called out some of the bullet points of, of what bothers me about people who proselytize or people who are evangelicals. But if I had to summarize it in perhaps a slightly glib way, it's that when you go to somebody and you proselytize a point of view, you seek them out, you find a stranger and start talking to them about something. Um, um, on the one hand, yeah, obviously it matters what it is that you're talking about. But, you know, there aren't that many people who haven't heard of Jesus. Right. They, they've at least processed it a little bit on some level. <laughs> right. They've thought about not drinking today, whatever it is, but good, bad, indifferent, whatever it is. As I say here today, I think the thing that bugs me about it the most is that the biggest takeaway from someone who proselytizes, if they're not really, really awfully good at it and awfully humane about it, and the thing that makes it feel a little culty, really across the board, is that the impression you are left with is that if I join up, I will become mostly an ineffective salesman for whatever this thing is. Because that's what this person is. What right. this person is really doing is is sales. And they're not they're doing like entry level sales. Yeah, so like right. The, and if you have any real questions, they're like, let's go talk to my let's go talk to my manager. Yeah, yeah. And whether that's in an institution or whatever, wherever you decide to hang your hat, beware of any place where you're not allowed to ask good questions. Mm-hmm. And but the, that's that that's I think and I say that because, like, I don't think I would have put it that way. I would have said, oh, man, you know, don't tell me what to do. Would have been more my way of, of looking at it. But now today, just in terms of the impression, in that case, you got this guy who came up to you on a boat, and it was kind of not the opposite of that. But, you know, unless he was doing some extremely advanced reverse psychology, <laughs> it's it's pretty different from, hey, have you heard about gravity? 
Can we talk right. about gravity? Or, right. you know, have you thought about cleaning your ears? Do you know Do you know how many people die each year from not cleaning their ears? There's a simple solution. You got someplace better to be? I didn't think so. <laughs> it's like, you know, they're not, they're not at the Skull and Bones Club trying to recruit people for this. They're at the bus station. They're at the commons. They're, they're at all the places where people are vulnerable and, and looking for answers without potentially knowing it. And, and, but the problem is, it's part of it is, um, I don't know, is it a branding problem? I don't know. Part of it is that what you come across, you come across as a, as a desperate salesman. And that's not what anybody wants to be. Yeah. Nobody wants to be a salesman. Nobody wakes up going, I want to be a salesman or a manager. People want to be cowboys and astronauts. Right. And, uh, cow persons and astro persons. In- individuals. <laughs> it's a pretty glib glib take on it but to this day you know it's why man i like i'm not i have uh, not that it matters but i have a panhandler that i sponsor my Hmm. my my program is i I pick a panhandler and every time at a given time and if the person disappears for whatever reason i pick somebody else but it'll be always be one person when i see him i give him five bucks that's my Uh entire approach i don't give anybody else any money i don't give girl scouts money i don't like begging I don't like going places and having people stop me and my daughter walking down the street to, to ask me something, to tell me something. To I don't want to. I don't. I don't think. I don't want to participate in that. They if just I, need a. They just need a fan belt to get their car running. I have a job again. interview and my son's in the car. Yeah. Uh, so I mean, I hope that doesn't sound uh, well. You know what? Fucking. I don't. I don't care. No, I don't not, care if it not at all. That's, exa- that's exactly right. And the thing about you know what I what, when I have reflected back on that Mike Mills guy on the boat, <laughs> my sense is. My sense is that he was like me. He did recognize me because every once in a while I'll, I'll see somebody out in the world and I will recognize them as like me. Is Mike Mills a time traveler? It, it, uh, <laughs> Mike, there was actually a real Mike Mills at the time. So if this was future Mike Mills coming back, he would have been. Oh, he crossed he, his streams. He would have been risking a lot. Yeah, tear, tear the space time continuum. But, you have to be pretty coked up to not care about that. <laughs> and. If there's a guy that's going to fit that bill, but uh, but I feel like what this guy, what what was in fact happening there was that this guy recognized me as him, and now he was trying to give me the advice he wished somebody had given him. Mm-hmm. He hadn't, you know, he was no more off the grid than I was. He was on the same fucking ferry boat from X to Y. Uh, but he was trying to. He was trying to make a difference in somebody's life. And and I think about that a lot now when I see people. And I try not to give people advice that I wish I had taken. You know, I try to I try to if you time it wrong, you really fuck it up. You really do. And and in a way, like you don't know what was gonna happen because you didn't do it either. Like you're, you are trying, it's a kind of, it's a way of trying to live vicariously. Yeah. And he, he walked away from that encounter and he was like, I fucking made a difference today. And I set that kid loose on the world. Right. Is it, well, it's a self-involved, I'll speak for myself. It's a self-involved version of pseudo time travel where you mm. wish you could have had that conversation with yourself when you could have used it at the right time, the right person, the right words, the right everything, all the stars align and something happens and you avoid wasting five years of your life. But it's impossible. You can't right. do that for you. You can't do that for them. Right. And, and, and the fact is, nobody knows what would have happened if I had, if that guy had, when he was 22, just gone off the grid. And we, when we don't know what would have happened if I had, because neither one of us did. And it might have been, it might not be 
great. I mean, I do know guys who have gone off the grid, and it isn't great uh, for for them or for the world. So those pro, those profound moments, you know what 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 that did was it gave me fifteen years uh, of another thing that I felt like I had failed. You know, like. <laughs> That guy gave that guy gave me everything I needed, and I should have just walked off that boat and into a new life. And I chickened out. Four months later, I chickened out and I went home. Oh, really? You really you really feel that way? Well, no, I don't now, but oh, I did but you, then. You gave yourself a white ribbon for that one. I did. I did give myself a white ribbon, and and you know, I, because I was always that was that era where I felt like if you are using money, if you are using human money you are a sellout if you if you need to buy your food at a store you are not truly alive and the only way you can think that way is if you are if you do not understand anything you know but i didn't understand anything and i did believe that that transa- that i that I, that somehow transactions were a thing I couldn't participate in that I had to I had to find a new currency and my currency was going to be song but you, you sound like an angry Buddhist monk where, where there's the, the kind that's, certain kind of monk not that inaccurate <laughs> you're, you're the kind of monk where you got your bowl and you have to go out and beg for your food each day but then you're not allowed to like squirrel anything away you have to start fresh every day right Empty bowl every morning. Except I was angry, <laughs> defeating the entire purpose of the exercise. That's rung 17. Which, which is a purposeless exercise, so... Realizing that's rung 18. <laughs> I hope somebody's writing down all these rungs. We've really we've got a lot of rungs. In comics, we call it retroactive continuity. We might need to go back and adjust some of the numbering a little bit. But see, they, they did I think this there were five or six sevens. LRH did this with all the OT yes, levels. Did. Yes, he did. For a long time, can you believe there was a time when they thought OT3 was as high as you can go? I cannot believe it. And then, then all of a sudden, he's got OT levels like, 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 like crazy go nuts. Well, are they are they subsets of OT3? Oh, or? no, no, no. Well, OT3, for, I think, if I remember, Not serves. OT3 subset A? Oh, no, no, no. I think, uh, I think Tom Cruise might be a seven. Wow. Yeah. I think five, I think, I'm trying to remember because I I read that book last year or so, but I think four, three is when shit gets real. Yeah. I think, I think four, maybe there's the one where it's like the dark night of the soul one. It's the one where they like, you realize how, how horrible everything is. And then you get into the Xenu after that. (laughs) But rungs, rungs are friendly. Everybody loves a ladder. I like to climb. Yeah. I like to climb. The thing about me is I'm still climbing. I'm still standing mm. after all these years. <laughs> <laughs> Looking like a true survivor. Feeling like, like a little kid. kid.